My name is Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is Process Driven. You know, there are some photographs that just stick with you. Images that, once you see them, you simply can't unsee. And it happens across virtually all genres of photography. A single image, a particular project, or an entire body of work seeps into our being and becomes a point of reference along an internal visual continuum. When I first saw the work of Nick Brandt, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. His photographs taken in East Africa transcended any wildlife photography that I'd seen before. Nick was somehow able to photograph the souls of these animals, not just their image or likeness. In his newest body of work, called Inherit the Dust, Nick returns to East Africa to show how habitat loss, as a result of population explosion and urbanization, are dramatically changing the landscape and threatening biodiversity and the continued existence of species that roam the plains for thousands of years prior to the proliferation of man. It really is an incredible body of work. Here's my conversation with Nick Brandt. Please listen carefully. I would like to begin with this. I've loved doing some reading about not only your work, but reading your essays. And I wanted to talk to you about writing as legacy. Um, another photographer who has become a friend over the past five or six years, David Dushman, uh, and he's a terrific photographer, but he's also a terrific writer and has said that he wouldn't be surprised if his writing long outlives his photography in terms of legacy. And I wonder if there's, if there's any sort of feeling in the same way that you have that, that, that you're writing about these issues that you photograph would take on a life of its own. And are you open to that as, as a form of legacy of your work? What a delight, a question that I've never had before exactly what I was hoping for from you. I think the thing is this, the photographs in the trilogy that I originally took, many of them could just appear to be images of an idyllic paradise. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was always, this is an elegy to a vanishing world. But you may not get that from the photographs. Whether you should or not is another matter. I'm not sure about that. But I have always felt the need to write essays in regards to all the work to clarify the intent or the calls to action mm -hmm. that are intent behind the photographs. In Inherit the Dust, the new body of work, um, where, as you know, there are these life-size panels of um, photographs of animals that I've taken in the past that are placed in these landscapes where the animals used to roam but no longer do, um, these appear to be images of no hope. They appear to be kind of dystopian landscapes, almost mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. Very much. And so you wouldn't necessarily um, see any notion of hope within those images without an accompanying essay. It was just too much to try and achieve uh, a sense of hope within the photographs as well as the dystopian mm -hmm. quality. As to the legacy aspect, 
Um, I, I do actually find writing very hard. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like doing homework. And it's, it's, it's even down to it's like Sunday night at 11 o'clock and you still haven't done your homework. <laughs> that, that's me. You're with, going to press on Monday morning. Yeah, and that's me with writing. I do find it really, really hard. So, um, no, I haven't really ever thought of that. I've just really thought of the essays as being a clarification. And you could say, well, hey, you know, the, the, the images should stand in their own right. Um, I think they do stand in their own right, but there's still context, there's still clarification that from the point of view of a call to action mm -hmm. is, ne is necessary. Yeah, there's a different impact reading the backstory or, or reading your statements about what the work is, is attempting to shine a light on beyond just the wildlife. Yeah. Now the thing is, is that what's always surprised me is that people have looked at those portraits of the animals and felt a sense of melancholy. Mm -hmm. Um, when looking at them and I've never really understood or really tried to find out that much whether they felt that sense of melancholy because that was just some quality within the photographs or whether it was informed by their knowledge that that, that world is disappearing, those animals are disappearing very fast as a result of man. Well, there is, there is this... this... <laughs> There, there is the anthropomorphizing of shooting these animals as portraiture rather than well, shooting them long no, lens. Gonna, no, you see, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt and Go ahead. disagree with the use of the word anthropomorphizing. Yes, there is a lot of anthropomorphizing that can go on. Mm -hmm. um, I take that word, let me just try and explain it. Because I think of animals not so very different from us. I think of them as sentient creatures, sure. not so different to us. For me, therefore, there isn't anthropomorphizing because they're already... Okay. So I mean, there, what, what I there's would not say, that, that much of a chasm between us. Exactly. But yeah. what I okay. would say, where I do see anthropomorphizing is there's, say, for example, a photograph that people have always wanted to get of um, a male and female line with their heads coming together. And... I, I've seen so many people go, oh, look at, you know, lines, uh, male and female line in love, and they've wanted to use that as their wedding photograph, et cetera, et cetera. And it's actually inaccurate. It's merely um, a male lion returning to the pride that isn't, that's not his mate. It's just, it's just their greeting, like mm -hmm. cats, cats do, you know, domestic cats, when they come back into the house and they just greet one another. Hmm. So there is that, there can be that level of anthropomorphizing from people viewing the work. But for me, as the photographer, I'm not, I believe, anthropomorphizing because to me the animals are kind of so similar to us anyway. And we are, and we are, and we are animals. Um, but tell me if you disagree. Again, this is where context plays a key role. In, in, in hearing how you see the subject matter evokes a change of opinion, or at least there's an understanding to, if I, if I just, in the same way that if I just saw your photographs uh, without reading any of the essays, 
I just in the last few days since you said, hey, go read these essays. I've come away with, I think, a different understanding of of where the work has come from and perhaps even where it's going. So let me ask you, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Do you think that you should have been able to discern that purely from viewing the work and not ever have needed to have read those essays? Me personally, no. I tend to find more reading about what the artist was trying to say or trying to accomplish or where the work came from. And in, in talking to a number of people, especially lately, this, this idea of transformation has been key, whether it's a transformation of materials or a transformation of ideology has been, has been key to almost garnering a greater appreciation for the work or a greater understanding of the work. And through that understanding, there's a greater appreciation. So no, I think in, in the case of reading these essays, I, I would feel, I would almost feel shortchanged seeing your work in a gallery without the accompanying essays, without seeing or reading a little into your process, a little bit into your ideology behind it. Right. So in other words, you don't think the less of the work by having a certain level of further illumination. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. And in fact, just the opposite. I, 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 I feel like there is as much as I can from reading, you know, a three or four page essay, I feel like there's perhaps even a deeper connection to the work beyond just here's some great light. Here's a great silhouette. Here's a great shadow. Whatever the technical or aesthetic nature of the work is, there is something more to it that you're trying to communicate. Now, one of the questions for you then as, as, as artist and activist, both of those things are about making choices and the activist portion is, is in many ways about making choices around language. And I wonder what some of the pros and cons are in using such charged language to communicate the ideas or communicate the imperative nature of, of what's going on in East Africa in talking about your work. Is it sometimes counterproductive uh, or off-putting to those who may be in a position to enact change? When you say charged language, what are you referring to? Well, in, in one of the essays, and I think it was, forgive me, but I think it was Inherit the Dust, where you're, you're using the word terrorist. Oh, yeah. Deliberately. Mm-hmm. There, yeah. And, and, and perhaps rightly I, I, so. Now, that's actually not, uh, that's a sort of a, a, a side note, a necessary side note in relation to climate change. Mm-hmm. The photography doesn't deal yet specifically with the impact of climate change in Africa. However, um, as you know from, I think, you know, the previous discussions we've had, I consider climate change to be the single most important issue facing mankind in the history of mankind. But you don't and see the work as, as, as being a statement around that yet? I'm saying that in, the, in Inherit the Dust, the work, that work relates more to uh, biodiversity loss, habitat mm-hmm, loss, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, population explosion, poaching. But climate change hasn't figured into the damage wrought in those particular photographs yet. Mm-hmm. That's all. Mm-hmm. But in the bigger 
future picture scheme of things, it's going to be monumental. And it's already happening. And those who deliberately suppress the legislation that could lead to the mitigation of climate change, those who deliberately spread misinformation are to be viewed as terrorists. Mm -hmm. Because in future years, the people who suffer from climate change will it, it, terror will be instilled within them, and thus the people who are responsible for that are effectively terrorists. That is the definition of being a terrorist. You instill terror. Fair enough. But again, going, going back to using that language, yeah. is, is there a danger that that language is off-putting to those who may be able to do something or well, to- the question, so the question is, have I just, in what I've just said, um, caused 20% of your listeners to switch off or roll their eyes? Right. I doubt it. I hope not. <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh, think so. I mean, if you are deliberately suppressing the, the information and legislation leading to the mitigation of, sorry, there's a lot of oceans in there, of climate change... You are, and, and you're doing it for the purposes of profit mm-hmm. for your corporation. That's pretty abominable behavior. Agreed. And as, I, I'm not disagreeing the, with you at all. I, I'm just wondering if, if the, the, the use of the language, if there are pros and cons, and, and you obviously seem prepared for the outcome, either pro or con, because mm-hmm. you're using this language very purposefully. And I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I'm just wondering if, if, if there is the danger of alienating a section of your audience who, who may be put off by. I th- here's the thing. I think that anybody who doesn't believe in climate change doesn't care about the environment enough to be somebody who is actually going to try and help in making, keeping the, in the, the, the planet's environment as healthy as it can mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. In other, in other words, they were never going to do anything for the planet. If they don't believe in climate change, they disregard 90, what is really effectively 99% of climate scientists around the world. Not 97%, it's now 99%. So... When you're that anti-science, when you're that disregarding of any intellectual thought, you're not really going to be caring that much. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not really going to be caring that much about the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, said, he said with a weary sigh. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will highlight the weary sigh. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if none of these projects... And, and I'm making an assumption here that they have been commercially successful. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but assuming that they have achieved a level of commercial success, how do you think the work may be different had they not achieved that level of success and still offer you the ability to communicate the same message? Well, there's two different things here. There's commercial success and there's still a success of reaching an audience. In other words, 
photographs, art can reach a wide audience, but be bought by absolutely nobody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so for example, the portraits of animals that I've taken in the past have so far sold better than the new work, which has only been out three months, Inherit the Dust, because that work is much more dystopian and sure. depressing. Sure. Um, so you're, you're less likely to hang. Uh, I, I could see the argument of being less likely to hang one versus another in your living right. room, let's say. But that's separate to whether it's had any kind of social impact or emotional impact upon people that has affected any kind of incremental change. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm l- using a lot of adjectives here. I hope it's not. I'm not just kind of sounding a little too. Uh, uh, I don't know. I've, I've got a plug in for that. It'll remove all of them. Excellent. <laughs> Delete with prejudice. That's right. Extreme. Yeah. Is it? Is it? I mean, you're. you're have I, it, I have, but we. I kind of didn't answer the question, did I? Not because really. I, so, what was the question again? <laughs> Uh, in terms of commercial success, how had had that not and and you know put in the, the outreach, you know, yes. uh, far-reaching success in term take monetization out of it. If 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 the work had not been as well received, and again making an assumption as it has been, how do you think you might course correct to still achieve the same to still dis. To still get the same message out. Well, now that's interesting because what you are implying by uh, using the phrase course correct is that I take photographs with a view to how other people will respond to them. And I've never done that. Mm -hmm. I've always taken photographs purely for myself, even though I'm mixing for art with activism. Sure. Effectively. To Very effectively, to be, to be clear. Well, thank you. But, but I've always, these photographs have always been purely for myself. I've never, ever taken a photograph trying to imagine how is somebody going to respond to this? How are they going to, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, there are things that I've done. I've just wanted to make sure that people haven't misinterpreted the work. Like I, in the new work, I, did what I could to try and lessen the, the notion that pe- uh, people think I did it all in Photoshop. Right. I tried to make it feel like as much as I could that those panels are actually there in situ, in those environments, not just Photoshopped in. But generally, but in a bigger picture, I'm just taking photographs for, my, for myself. Mm-hmm. And if I started taking photographs with a specific view to maximizing impact, I think then does it switch over into basically being polemic or propaganda? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, there's certainly a danger of it. Yeah, and I'd there's like certainly a danger of, so, of losing so that sense of integrity. Yes, right. Yeah, I, yeah, and I think so far I'd like to think I've I've walked the the correct side of the line that has stopped the work tipping over into polemic or propaganda. Mm-hmm. You mentioned showing some of the scenes in, in Inherit the Dust, to what degree has your willingness to show the process behind the work changed since that project, if at all? Well, it's, it's fairly fundamentally. Look, I always thought, I always believed in the mystery of creation. And, mm-hmm. I, I, and I, as, as I said in that essay that you read, um, 
I get really frustrated that everything these days has to be, there's got to be behind the scenes, right. the making of. The, <laughs> I want to see your lighting diagrams. The, the EPK of, you know, <laughs> right. and like as soon as you finish the movie on DVD, you go straight into the behind the scenes. And, sure. you know, I, I'm a sucker for that too. But it's kind of part of that is a shame. There's like, let's just leave it at the mystery of creation. So I deliberately did absolutely nothing. I had a complete ban on behind the scenes photography. And then when it came to showing the work at the end, I had everybody saying, oh, it's all done in Photoshop. And I was, that drove me crazy. And then we had to dredge up what few iPhone photographs there were taken during the course of the month long shoot to show people, look, we did do it for real. We did drag these giant panels out onto location, sort of like Herzog dragging his ship over right, the mountain. Which, which we talked about. Which was, yeah. and, I, and I've been I've been instructed by you to never refer to a Herzog film as a flick, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that applies just solely to Herzog, by the way. I think we can extend that that ruling uh, to, to any number of serious filmmakers. It's a fairly malleable list. Extensive, yeah. to say the least. <laughs> I'd like to talk about Jane Goodall just for a minute, if we could. Yeah. Uh, she describes uh, a spiritual connection to to the landscape, to the animals within the landscape. And I wonder to what degree you might feel the same. And is it fair to say what you do is you can consider that a calling of sorts? Because I think it goes past passion on some level, on a lot oh, of yeah. levels. No, I, I totally, I do consider a calling. I do feel a absolute visceral spiritual uh, for want of a better word mm-hmm. uh connection to those places those animals um i wither and die in any kind of urban environment i mean I, i'm sound, i'm sounding a little melodramatic here well i'm not sounding a little mel- very melodramatic but I, I i kind of i'm just a fish out of water in those mm-hmm. places i don't feel like i belong in any kind of urban environment much to the chagrin of my wife a you have such a-, a strong reaction you you said the other day on the phone a day in the city is a day lost a day of my life lost absolutely yeah and it, has, does that go back even to your childhood yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah totally um for me, there are multiple moments of joy in the countryside. I mean, I'm sitting here right now uh, out in the open, looking out to the Pacific, uh, looking at the mountains of oak groves, looking at hummingbirds and red-tailed hawks flying overhead, uh, looking at the sunlight, backlighting um, all these beautiful cedar trees. And, and it's just, what would, I, how, what would I get in the city? Where I, I can in New York, you can barely see the sky. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously everybody's different. For other people, there's the stimulation of the urban environment. There's the buzz. I don't feel that, and I and and I think that when we are born, we all have an instinctual connection to nature, and that as we grow up, and there's various peer pressure and societal pressure and team pressure, that connection to nature is diminished or even lost mm-hmm. and that maybe hopefully for some people they find it again later in life when that other stuff ceases to be of such importance uh there is a scene in the secret life of walter mitty have you seen this movie uh i haven't seen the movie i read the book when i was a kid right 
Okay. There, there I'm is not going to remember much about it. That's fine. There's a scene in the film where Walter is, is, is searching for Sean Penn's character, who's a photojournalist, and finds him on this mountaintop where he's shooting the elusive leopard, this, this ghost leopard that he's shooting. Uh-huh. And they're sitting there, and, and Penn's character has his camera trained on it, and uh, Walter says, when are you going to take it? And Penn's character responds, sometimes I don't. Uh, if I like a moment, and I'm quoting, if I like a moment personally, I don't like to have the distraction of a camera. I just want to stay in it. Yep. And in one of the essays, you describe a scene in Amboseli uh, where there were elephants, where it, where it just wasn't physically possible to make the photograph. And I, I get that there are technical limitations, but I would imagine there have been instances where you just maybe refuse to take the photograph. And I wonder if you could talk about how that comes about. How do you decide whether to or not to take a photograph uh, and, and instead just enjoy the moment and stay in it, as this character says? There are just certain occasional scenarios that unfold before you in nature which are so glorious, so impossible to capture. Unless you were shooting film. If you were shooting film, then you would do it. But if you're shooting stills, that cannot begin to capture the extraordinary sh- subtle shifts of drama unfolding before you or sh- sheer scale. And really, all you're going to do, if you do attempt to take the photographs, is just spoil or diminish the experience. Mm-hmm. And so really, instead of taking a bunch of crappy photographs, it's better just to sort of put the camera down and just watch in awe. And so a couple of times, once with an elephant birth in the Serengeti, and once the situation you're describing in Amboseli with an elephant herds, um, that's what I've done. You just... Enjoy the moment and just become part of it. Yeah. But like I said, if you were shooting film or video... Um, and you felt you had more chance of capturing it, that would be different. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I wonder if you might want to talk a little bit about video, because it's, it, seems, it seems that's where uh, a, a great deal of, of the shift in photography is, is shifting towards video and the insistence that you shoot video. In there. And, and it, I guess it goes back to the well, kind of behind the scenes. Are you, are you saying video or digital? Uh, video, like actual motion? Well, I think one of the things that's kind of concerned me is a kind of old-fashioned something of a traditionalist is the great uh, notion of capturing the decisive moment. It's kind of gone as digital, as video becomes better and better quality. It's almost like you can just roll video and if you want to make, you can just take the best frame and just blow it up as a actually pretty good quality print. Just extract so, a still from, from the stream. Extract, yeah, exactly. Sure. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Um, and so that notion of a decisive moment is kind of falling by the wayside. Do you see a point where, where, where film ceases to be your main tool of choice, as long as film is being produced, assuming, you know, making the assumption that, it, that film is 
I don't know. I mean, there's this potential new project which, out of necessity, I would have to shoot digital. It would still be still images, but um, it's a kind of a project project basis. I still personally, as you know, love film. I'm turned on by film. I'm not turned on by digital. And were I to do a project that had to, out of necessity, practical necessity, be digital, I would do that and find uh, a, a kind of emotional excitement into it in other ways. But uh, I was just down at a camera store yesterday evening buying a telescope, and um, I saw on the shelves they had all this film, and I actually had a pang of gratitude. That, that someone still that, carried film. <laughs> that they were still carrying film right. and not just, and there was, there was my T-Max 100 uh, medium format, you know, 120 roll uh, packs of film up on the shelves. And I, I kind of, I became quite emotional actually, just seeing, you know, I was certainly grateful that so they were still carrying it. There is, there is something, I mean, many photographers have talked about this, the, that moment in the darkroom where you see the image kind of come up in the tray of developer. And I remember that very vividly from high school because I'd never, I'd never experienced that process before. I'd never seen anything like it. And, and there is that, that even after understanding the physics behind it, even after understanding the process behind it, there is still some sort of alchemy to seeing a, a, a white piece of paper, seeing an image emerge. Yes. And I mean, remember, I'm not actually, I'm still producing digital prints from film negative. Sure, so sure. I'm not but you're on that, the other side of still, it. You're analog on the other side. Yes. And yeah. there is still a magic and I still am unnerved by the ease with which an image can be captured. Mm -hmm. I hate that word. Like people say, oh, great capture. Somebody will write about <laughs> one of my photographs. And <laughs> I want to just kind of write back somewhat grumpily. It's not a capture. It's a photograph. Right, sure. Um, but um, the ease of digital slightly unnerves me. I, I kind of, there's some masochistic side of me that wants the kind of century-long neurosis, paranoia, and stress that comes with wondering whether actually the image even will come out when mm -hmm. the film is developed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there are so many points of failure. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially for you shooting in, in East Africa. I, yeah, but can I just say there's also a point of failure that can come from shooting digital sure. because you're tempted to look at that preview screen on the back of the camera, which will take you out of the moment, cause you to potentially second guess what you were taking and thus adapt what you were taking in an in, a, in actually in a negative way mm -hmm. that had you just been shooting in the moment this is what i like about film is i'm shooting in the moment i'm making this direct connection with my subject and i'm not pulled out of that moment tempted out of that moment by checking what i've shot on that screen which can be a, a total lifesaver in terms of oops that's not working but it can also work the other way mhm mm mhm mm do you feel a greater connection? Because you use waist level finders, yes? Isn't that is that how you shoot by and yes. large? Yes. Do, do you feel a, a more of a connection shooting that way than you would totally. camera up to yeah. your face? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. completely. I, I like, and I'm again you use this phrase turned on by that ground glass image. Mm -hmm. 
And even the proper size, a six by seven ground glass image, not six four five, certainly not thirty five mil. Um, a ground glass image where it's just, I just love it. And just looking through a view, a view find, you know, eyepiece just doesn't have the same impact for me. And of course, the, the image on the ground glass can be very deceptively beautiful because you're seeing it in a certain three dimensionality on that sense of three dimensionality. And then when you get the contact sheets, you just go, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> that is so profoundly boring or mediocre. How did I ever think that was an exciting image? But that's kind of all, again, part of the process. Sure. To what degree do you feel like you need to earn these images? God, what does that mean? <laughs> well, you, you, you have talked very passionately about the process not being easy and, and your, yes. your work, you're not going to someplace local. You're not using digital. You're not, there are all these obstacles, either, either yeah, physical I mean, that, or that, emotional that, or mental. I, I think, I think we come back to Herzog again mm -hmm. there. I, I would actually guess without having asked him or read anything about it, I would guess that he needs the sort of stimulation of going to a difficult place and doing a difficult shoot. Mm -hmm. That that is engages his artistic juices, his, his intellect, right. in a way that a, a, a drama inside a house in Los Angeles is not going to. And I think the same does apply for me. I've always, I mean, right from my teens, um, when I first, actually from the very beginning, when I first started picking up a camera in my early teens, it was always to photograph in far-flung places. It was kind of, I can't think of photography I ever took in my local world, you know, my local universe, as it were. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, you, there's, there's a lot of people you can look at in terms of that. I mean, Salgado is another obvious sure. uh, example. Sure. Yeah. A uh, monster of a photographer. And I mean that uh, in the best way possible. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, at the same time, I wish I could just develop the film right there that night, scan it just to make sure I had what I thought I had. Mm-hmm because I've had disastrous scenarios where um, stuff didn't come out. And had I been shooting digital, I would have known in five minutes and not shot for two months, gone home, discovered it was no good, and then had to go back at inordinate cost to reshoot because it was film. Had I been shooting on an iPhone, I would have discovered within five seconds. <laughs> an iPhone, right. <laughs> Does the joy that you get, it sounds like it does, and I'm, I'm assuming this is a yes, but does the joy you get from a particular body of work, is, is that directly proportional to the sort of degree of difficulty involved in making that body of work? I honestly don't know. I really, really, really don't know. Maybe. I, maybe there is a greater satisfaction that, probably there's a greater satisfaction that does come from achieving something against all obstacles. I mean, for me, 
you know, one of the greatest films ever made is Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. And there's got to be a greater sense of satisfaction for Coppola that he pulled that off right. Right. against so many odds. Notice how the references we're making or I'm making relate more to film than photography. Um, don't know why. Has, has film has film are you more inspired by by film than other stills photography no i don't think so um inevitably having been a director for quite some years before becoming a photographer um it probably influenced me in ways i don't really comprehend but mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. has um I don't, I'm not consciously, I say consciously influenced particularly by any piece of uh, any photographer or filmmaker. Um, although inevitably, obviously, one is alive, stuff sifts into one's subconscious and sure. affects you. But it seems, even in this conversation, it seems that you're drawn to or, or at least reference directors who for whom arguably their greatest projects were their most difficult? Uh, okay, so well, if we think about Coppola... If you think about Coppola and Apocalypse well, Coppola's Now... Great, Coppola's greatest work is Godfather Part Two, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, that series of films that he did in the 70s, Godfather Part One, Part Two, The Conversation, and then Apocalypse Now, those, I mean, that is an extraordinary, unparalleled body of work. Um, Herzog, Fitzgerald though, is not a great film in my opinion. It has amazing, extraordinary elements to it. Um, but it's kind of a flawed film. I, would, I wouldn't think either he or, I, I don't think he would regard that as one of his greatest works. It's just, it's talked about because of what he achieved and you know this again comes back to if Fitzcarraldo was made today by any other director it would a lot of it would probably be done in cg sure a, a especially ship, the ship. Giant ship that's what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. giant ship gets pulled over a mountain in the amazon by men pulling ropes with pulleys pulley systems and stuff and it would be done in CG, and in many ways it wouldn't feel as real, which comes back to the absolute need, in my opinion, to shoot in situ, not use Photoshop, uh, because the, what you get shooting reality is, for me, always going to be superior. Back to Inherit the Dust for a moment. Uh... How, if at all, has has the? I mean, you've, you've you've witnessed such dramatic change, and you talk about that in in the essay that in in some ways the changes in the landscape and urbanization have have surpassed what you thought they might be. Um, how or to what degree has that changed what you feel compelled to do next? 
Are you asking that question in relation to what comes after Inherit the Dust? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. it, it, okay. it, it seems on some level that you, you were surprised by how quickly the landscape had changed right. at the end of Inherit the Dust. So do, does that change? Well, no, how much the landscape had changed that motivated beginning Inherit the Dust. Mm, mm-hmm. That escalation of destruction and disappearance of the natural world is still escalating, obviously. Mm-hmm. So the question then is, do you need to keep at it? Right. Does, does that, does that change or, or does that, how does that inform what you do next? It does inform it. Um, you know, to the degree that you're able to talk about it. I know you can't, uh, Divide. Well, I don't even know if that idea is even going to work. I mean, it's in such kind of embryonic stage in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the bigger point is I kind of feel uh, compelled. He sighed wearily again. <laughs> um, to continue because I need to do what I can to kind of in my own incremental way try and uh, slow down that destruction of the natural world in one small part of the world Mm -hmm. is there a stronger self-identification for you between photographer and activist and has that changed over time especially with the creation of the foundation i've always first and foremost seen myself as a photographer um the conservation these animals gave me have given me so much they've given me an a great life so far they've given me a very comfortable life i have benefited financially from them through the photography of them and it would be really kind of abominable to just not try and help them mm-hmm. and sort of save their lives as best as I can um, by not doing something, um, by doing something. Have I got that mixed up by doing, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, um, and so, you know, when I went back in 2010 and I saw so many of these elephants that I knew so well being poached on an almost what felt like weekly basis and there being so little around, so little infrastructure in the way of conservation groups, uh, government bodies doing anything, that I just felt, look, there's something that can be done here. There's something that should, must be done here. And with the, with, with having so many wealthy collectors of my photographs, I felt maybe I'll just try and see if I can tap into that Mm -hmm. and see if some of them will donate. And very fortunately, incredibly luckily, the very first collector I went to see in New York donated a million dollars. Wow. Right out of the gate. Wow. Yep. Very first meeting. And with that, we were able to buy uh, land cruisers. We were able to hire rangers build outposts and within a matter of months with that money had started catching some of the most notorious long-term poachers 
who had been working with total impunity in that mm -hmm, ecosystem mm -hmm. for years. And that then kind of started a snowball effect where people saw that we were being successful and now other collectors came along and made incredibly generous donations. Wow. And, and gradually we expanded out from there to non-collectors who started donating. And now we're at a point, you know, five and a half years down the line where the incidences of poaching in the two million acre area where the rangers of Big Life Foundation, that's the name of the foundation, uh, patrol, the, the, the incidence of poaching has reduced to almost nothing. Hmm. And that's a, an incredible success, more than I ever imagined. The next big massive challenge is human-wildlife conflict, biodiversity loss, the fact that there are just so many people and there's, a, there's such a finite amount of space for both animals and man. I think the poaching aspect for profit uh, for the Far East and other places in the world, that will gradually be gotten under control in certain areas like ours. The bigger issue is we're running out of space for both man and animal. Mm -hmm. Has the government been as receptive as the various collectors of your work have been to the idea? The government in uh, are incredibly grateful. I mean, we are there at their pleasure, mm -hmm. but they are also incredibly grateful because they don't have the money to put towards or choose not to have the money to put towards uh, protection of wildlife in non-national park areas. In other words, sometimes these national parks are tiny. So they've got their ranges in the national park, but these animals migrate outside of those national parks and are outside the national parks for you know 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. And when they move out of those tiny national parks like Amboseli, which is only 100,000 acres, they're on community land where they're completely vulnerable to being killed at any moment. And so having our rangers patrolling in those areas and working with the community and the community increasingly understands the benefit, the economic benefit of protecting such an incredible resource. It's very pragmatic. It's not poetic, but they increasingly understand that. Um, that's, that's basically how it works. The, the community aspect of it has been fascinating to read about where it's, it's, you know, cousins of friends of everyone is sort of looking out for these animals. In, yes. In, as, as I say, so, you know, 300 rangers can fit inside one school gym. Mm -hmm. How the hell do they protect two million acres. Mm -hmm. And the answer is because each of them has a family and, and so, and the family is proud that their uncle, father, brother is working as a big life ranger. Sure. And so if a poacher comes in, we're going to get to hear about it because that's a, thousands of sets of more eyes out there seeing what's going on beyond the 300 guys patrolling. So it just works. That's the whole point is that if conservation supports the community, then the community will support conservation. You take away those animals from those areas of semi-arid desert, there's almost nothing left 
of economic benefit. It's just li- livestock herding. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things you you mentioned in in one of the essays, and I had no idea about this, was the the incredible difference uh, in value uh, twenty thousand dollars for an elephant. Yeah, the, the tusks on average but between the poacher and the trader mm-hmm. versus one point six million dollars that uh, is garnered during to the economy of a country during the course of an elephant's natural life. It's an enormous difference. And I, I had no idea that the difference was that great. Nor did I. Yeah. Well, it just once again proves that the long-term benefit to people and to an economy is so much greater than the short-term economic bane of, of destroying the environment for the sake of mining or something that's going to be a short-term economic gain mm-hmm. um, in those areas where there's really nothing that nothing of value except for trying to herd livestock between ever-worsening droughts due to man-made climate change. Right, right, right. Man-made climate change, underlined in bold, <laughs> upper, uppercase. Right, I got it. I got it. <laughs> Just in case we do actually have anybody listening at who, this point. That's right. who, who actually believes that climate change is just some liberal hoax. Right. Right. Jesus. <laughs> you, you said something to the effect of, can't it just be about the image when we talked? But there is such a fascinating process behind your photographs. And without that process, and even, even, if, it, even if the process is just waiting for weeks on end for that moment with that animal. There, there is still definitely process that, that as a viewer, we don't see the process behind the images. We don't see the waiting. We don't see the lugging around of the 30 foot tall prints. We don't get to see that. We just get to see the end product. And I wonder to what degree that has changed, if at all, or, or is it becoming more important to, to sort of peel back the curtain a little and allow us as viewers to be part of that process? One of the reasons is due to Photoshop. Mm-hmm. But in this day and age when everybody thinks everything is just done in Photoshop, you just download the latest version of Photoshop right. and the two-minute tutorial has a rhino being composited on a beach and a giraffe being composited in front of the Golden Gate Bridge. Are you being sarcastic and or does it really? That's genuinely, I downloaded it the yeah. other day and uh, I couldn't believe it. And I watched this two minute tutorial and I just kind of buried my head in my hands. And I just thought, and this is, yeah, could, this could we get, is what could we get the think. sigh one more time? <sighs> there it is. Sigh number 53. That's right. Uh, each one a slightly different length and pitch yeah. To, yeah. to denote a different sort of level of frustration. So yeah, revolution number nine, sigh number 53. Um, so in that regard, where people will just think the less of your work because they don't comprehend the levels, the superior levels, I might add, Mm -hmm. that you went to, uh, then it's, it becomes really important. I mean, I can't believe that I heard some, the photos were being exhibited at photo London a couple of weeks ago 
and there was somebody saying, oh, that those bottles, th- there's these kids in the photograph who are sniffing glue. This is the under the bridge, under the bridge shot? Yeah, yep. under, yeah. and, they, and the, they, they're all sitting there with these glue bottles attached to their faces, which is basically they're just being held in place by kind of a sort of underbite kind of mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the, 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 the tip of the bottle is, the, is under their nose. And um, people just say, I heard somebody say, um, oh, well, obviously he just composited those bottles in. Mm. In Photoshop, like, really? <laughs> like, to what level of minutiae are we saying everything has been fabricated in Photoshop. It's just ridiculous. And so if you do have to kind of start proving it's all shot for real, because it does make a difference. People do appreciate the work more when they know it's for real. Absolutely. Then I have to do that. Mm -hmm. But if I take away that frustrating new aspect of creation to show that it was done for real, then how much is left that it needs to be, you need to show behind the scenes? I, I don't know. I don't know. Are, are people as enthusiastic? Are they as excited? Are they, are, they, are they as interested in this body of work as the previous three books? I would say that, by and large, more people seem to think, people seem to think this is my best work, hmm. which I would agree with. Um, that doesn't mean to say they want to buy it. Uh, obviously there are many, 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 many people who really, really don't want to buy it. And obviously wish I was still taking more wall friendly photographs, but obviously I'm not a wall decorator, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not taking photographs for people's walls. I'm taking photographs again for myself. Sure. Um, so that's the kind of trade off. It's the, the project cost an unbelievable amount of money. It was basically like financing my own movie. Sure. And the returns on it are nothing like what have been with the portraits, hmm. but it had to be done. Right. So there you go. I'm, I'm curious, what, what about this body of work? Why is this your best body of work? What, what about it resonates so personally with you or, or so much more than the other bodies of work? Um, I think there's just a greater complexity. I mean, some could say, listen, there's nothing wrong with the purity of some of the best earlier photographs. Mm-hmm. And that's completely justified. You know, look, listen, there's always this tendency, you know, like, you know, you know, a, a band gets back together and it's, you know, they've created masterpieces back in the 70s. And now they come together and they're saying, yeah, this is our best best album and you're just listening to it going what but you did this in the 60s and the 70s and this is your best work it's like dude really seriously you're just saying that for um so i'd like to think it's not just because it's new sure um but i have heard over and over again um people say i think this is your best work i've had a few people email and say i just wanted to let you know i really hate your new work which kind of amused have you really yeah which it's just like Really? Do you, do you, Why do you, take the time to do that? I know. And I really wasn't offended. I was actually amused. Um, I had one person come up 
I, I can't imagine. No, no, listen, Nick, I, I can't one imagine dealer, that. No, no, I had one dealer come up to me in Berlin, uh, say, I just want you to know, I really hated your previous work. I thought it was completely, I thought I, it was terrible. This new work, it's not so bad. Thanks. <laughs> I, I was, I, you know, I was amused. It was fine. <laughs> it's fine. At least it's going in the right direction. I would, what would worry me, it was the other way around. Right, right. But even then when people said, you know, when other people have written, I really do, and, and said what they said, that they don't like the new work, like I said, it doesn't bother me because I think I'm going in the right direction. Right. And you're always going to have people complaining, but why aren't you doing that? Which it's the, again, I always use these music analogies. It's like the, well, but you're not doing the music that I love. You've, you've changed. Yeah. Because, well, I would hope so. Because I'm done with that and now right. I'm moving on. And maybe sometimes I'll fail. Maybe sometimes it really won't be as good. Mm -hmm. But I have to kind of try. Sure. And, you know, if you, but if you've naturally got an obsession that you need to play out, it's, you know, Monet painting his water lilies or Francis Bacon doing an endless series of amazing, astonishing portraits of people in these kind of isolated spaces, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that either mm -hmm. because you are working or Lucian Freud spending his entire life painting those very corporeal um, figures there's nothing wrong with that you are just working through your own particular obsession and if that is takes the course of a lifetime so be it what a fascinating conversation you know, I, I really wasn't prepared for the backstory to the work, and reading the essays and hearing Nick speak about it so passionately was inspiring. Uh, if you'd like to see Nick's work, visit nickbrandt.com. That's N-I-C-K-B-R-A-N-D-T.com, where you'll find photographs from Inherit the Dust, as well as his three previous bodies of work, On This Earth, A Shadow Falls, and Across the Ravaged Land. Uh, to learn more about the foundation that Nick co-founded with Richard Bonham, visit biglife.org. Uh, and you can subscribe to Process Driven on iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, visit jeffreysadoris.com. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S. And click on the support the show button. Uh, you can also support the show by sharing it on social media or by leaving a review or a rating on iTunes. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at Jeffrey Sedoris. Again, that's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S. -E -E and as always, thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you on the next one.